While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Andrew. And if you didn't know this already, each week one of us takes a book off our bookshelves and reads it to the other person, but not actually two of them. They just read it and we talk about it. This is still a better <laughs> intro than anything I did last week. Thanks for taking that over, Andrew. Yeah, no, it was it was hard work, but you know, somebody's got to do it and you clearly were not up to the task. No, I really wasn't. Uh, we're going to be talking about The Crucible this week by Arthur Miller, but do we have any like retractions or anything, anything we need to correct from last time? I don't I think don't so. I don't think we did anything wrong in particular, which is rare. <laughs> in um, particular. <laughs> so what you're saying sure is we made a, a perfect podcast. Basically, except for we sounded really tired, and um, I still don't remember the name of the book, As I Lay Dying. Nope, not it. The, try the again. Things, the Things Before Dying. Nope, try again. No, uh, Lesson Before Dying, that was it. Yeah. That was the part. Things Fall Apart by Jinua Achebe. Yeah. Yeah, that one. <laughs> anyway, so without further ado, let's talk about The Crucible, Andrew. Okay. Who wrote it? Did I say? Arthur Miller wrote it. Oh, good job, me. Playwright Arthur Miller. Playwright Arthur Miller. Now, why are you reading, or why did you read The Crucible? Um, This is another one of the ones that has not actually been on my bookshelf for very long, but... um. I read, I think, in general, fewer plays than you because you work in the theater and I don't. Yeah, <laughs> but that, that seems about that seems fair. I tend to I tend to play with less mid tier Windows laptops than you do. I yeah, would say. and you are. I tell you what, you are missing out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of my more favorite plays is Death of a Salesman, which is okay. also Arthur Miller. So okay. I decided. I wanted to read a play because I wanted something that was kind of shorter and easier to digest than something like Middlesex. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I I decided I would read something by Arthur Miller, and I picked The Crucible from among his, his noteworthy plays. Okay. Can you say yeah. offhand, before we talk, start talking about The Crucible itself, why you like Death of a Salesman? Because I think that might help frame this discussion. You know, I haven't read it in a while, but... Um, I guess I, I I just like the the way the story flows. I like the way that the characters talk. I like I just like mm. the way that it's written. Okay. And um, I think the story arc is really well constructed. And yeah, I would um, agree with that. Yeah. I think I'm always surprised, and I don't know that I don't remember if this factors into the Crucible. I'm I'm always struck the couple of times I've read Death of a Salesman by the like magical dream stuff that that Willie goes through, mm-hmm. where he's like. I don't, it's like memory play stuff that, you know, when I think about Death of a Salesman, that's not always the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, kind of takes me by surprise. But anyway. Yeah, the, cruci- the Crucible is pretty straightforward. I mean, there are no, it's it's not very long. It's it's four um, four acts and mm-hmm. one one scene per act. I think act two had a couple of scenes in it at one point, but it was like the second scene 
It was very, sh- was very abbreviated, and it was um, removed. I think. Oh wow! Later on, so like it, it was, it showed up in the copy that I got as like an appendix, but I, I think in the in the play as performed, I don't think it's normally in there. I think I remember that from the version I read in high school, where there was a there was a scene that was included at the end of the book. Yeah. Is it is it a Tichuba scene? No, no, no. It's just uh, John Proctor and Abigail talking. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Well, now we're dropping character names. We haven't even talked dropping about what the play's character about. Character names. What's the uh, What's the elevator pitch for the Crucible, Andrew? All right. The uh, Crucible is a play about the Salem witch trials. Okay. That's the pitch. <laughs> is that all you got? Yep. I don't. That's it. I'm so concise. Great. All right. Not gonna End do one of those long rambling things. Thanks for listening. See you. We're on Twitter. <laughs> See you next week. Um. Yeah. So it it begins when um a few of the girls in Salem, like um young adults, like close to eighteen, within a couple years of eighteen. So still kind of almost children, but technically adults at this point. Teenage girls. Yeah, are found to be like dancing in in the woods and um is there something lewd about their dancing well i mean this is like puritan times so just the act of just dancing act, in and of itself is kind of like of it's like inherently inherently lewd the devil is in your feet child yes okay so they shouldn't be dancing in the woods they shouldn't be dancing okay. and like in, in and there are, there are some other accusations that start flying around but, but um, there's a girl, I think her name is Betty, who's kind of in like a coma kind of thing. She can't be roused. And um, when some people like outside are singing a hymn and they say God's name, she starts screaming and stuff. So like. So she's a witch. That's what that means. Somebody floats the idea. That <laughs> Someone just casually maybe, tosses it out maybe, there. Maybe. Maybe she's a witch. Oh. And then everyone <laughs> takes that for gospel. Yeah. Great. And okay. um so so once that idea is floated there's another, you know, there's another character of course who's standing there who's like, "Oh, well now that you bring up witchcraft, like, oh, my wife was in our room reading and while she was reading I couldn't do my prayers, but then when she left, I could do my prayers. Maybe she's a witch too." Oh no. And it just kind of snowballs. Oh no. I don't remember. That sounds awful. <laughs> well, and the version I have is um annotated and I'm okay. not a hundred percent sure whether the annotations are um are Arthur Miller's or if they are those of like the editor or whatever. I'm not sure how I'm not sure how I think they're those of the editor. I'm not sure how often a play is presented with like big blocks of prose like examining stuff in it, but I don't remember I mean Arthur Miller certainly, from what I understand, would do that if someone mm-hmm. asked him to. I'm yeah, sure. It's just kinda like background information on Weird. the characters. Okay, because some of them are based off real people, right? Um, as far as I know, I mean, I, I don't know anything specific about the people who the characters are based off of. Okay, yeah, fair I, enough. I believe that is correct. All right. Um, so that's that's the first. So in the first act, we get the girls dancing, like the setup for everything, and then the second thing we get in the first act is um, there's this character named John Proctor, okay, who um, at one time engaged in an affair with. Um, Abigail, who was his housekeeper at the time. She's no longer their housekeeper, but she's still, like, around town. How old is she? Um, she's around 18, and she's kind of the kind of the ringleader of this group of girls who have been accused of witchcraft. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. She's kind of the instigator. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are those are the two most important tidbits that we get from from the first act. Okay. Um, act two is John Proctor at home with his wife Elizabeth, uh-huh. who know who knows about the affair and ca- you know sent Abigail packing. Oh yeah. Um, and they're like trying to move on past it, but like there's still a lot of distance between the two of them. Do other people know that that happened? Not at this point. Okay. No. Oh. Oh. Okay. Um. So the so the trials have kind of started. Like every between every um every act is a period of usually you know a few weeks to a few. Like a few days, weeks, or months. There, there is some time that separates. <laughs> time passes. Time passes between each of the acts. <laughs> Seconds, minutes. We have all the years. different units here. Okay, not years. No. Not years. No. Okay. Um, so the the trials are sort of getting heated up, and um, at this point, pretty much anybody who's being accused is being brought in. Okay. Because you know this is the, the these are the Salem witch trials and they're not exactly known for their um, their even handedness. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, and this is you don't you don't this? describe like very very like procedural um, trials as witch hunts. There's so no forensic evidence. No, that's how you know this is going to go down bad. Is this for, is this is like the 1600s? Is this late 1600s? Uh, yeah, like they still they their official currency is still pounds and stuff. So this oh, okay. is still like this is still colonial America. Okay, great. And I, yeah, I think the late 1600s, like either the 1670s or the 1690s. That sounds right. Um, it's in there somewhere. So Abigail still harbors feelings for John Proctor, and well, so duh. she Abigail contrives to have Elizabeth accused of being a witch. Now, has Abigail been accused of being a witch? Um, I think so. But okay, here's the thing about being accused of being a witch <laughs> that's going to come up later and be very important. All right, how does this work? But basically, what you have to if you deny it and deny it and deny it. Mm-hmm. But they and they think you're guilty anyway. Then you're gonna get hanged. <laughs> Great. Yep. If you confess and say you're gonna walk in the light of the Lord, you get pardoned. Really? And so there's there's a really great passage, and I've done a much better job, I think, this week of highlighting stuff. I want to come back to. <laughs> <laughs> we are a we are a work in progress, folks. What did you have to do to get accused in the first place? Other than dance um, in the woods. Possibly naked, but maybe not. <laughs> somebody just has to, and this is the passage I'm trying to find. Somebody just has to accuse you of being a witch and say like, oh, oh God. like there's, there's a character who's a midwife. And one of the other characters says, you know, I've had seven kids and everyone she's delivered have all like died in her arms as babies, like died after. She's a witch. So she's a witch. Oh, no. So it's you know everybody who gets accused is basically assumed guilty until proven innocent and there's a good there's a lot of good stuff from Proctor who I I picture him as being played by Jimmy Stewart in my head okay because he goes on like these these things where he gets kind of heated up and he's making these proclamations about the nature of humanity and stuff like a John Proctor goes to Washington kind yeah of thing. and you just kind of imagine him in Congress <laughs> with like his hair messed up. <laughs> okay but at this point um there's you know they're at john proctor's house and somebody has come with a warrant to arrest elizabeth and um it, it comes out that 
the reason she's being arrested is because Abigail has accused her. And Proctor says, why do you never wonder if Paris be innocent or Abigail? Is the accuser always holy now? Were they born this morning as clean as God's fingers? I'll tell you what's walking Salem. Vengeance is walking Salem. And it goes on to, um, you know, he, he, he doesn't come out with the news of like the affair yet, but the, what he's getting at is that, you know, Abigail wants to remove Elizabeth from the picture. So he shows she can be with, with John Proctor. Well, and I think that's, we, we, you know, we're not quite at the part in the show where we usually start breaking down theme, but I think that relationship is great for what Miller's probably saying about witch hunts and, you know, the metaphorical type of witch hunt. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll get to the metaphor stuff kind of toward the end. And actually, the the third and fourth acts are less, I think, less dense plot synopsis wise. Okay, but um, so right, act so keep three, going. keep going. Act three, they're at the courthouse. There is um like a state, um, a state governor or so- somebody who's been brought down to judge, and he's judging everybody. Like he is, he is the <laughs> like there's a, there's a um a priest, I think. Who, whose name is Hale, who kind of yep. initially um, brings up witchcraft when, okay. you know, in, in, back in Act 1. Was Danforth the judge? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Danforth. And, um, I think that's his name. Well, Paris, who's Paris? Paris is like the, the priest of the town. Okay, all right. And um, like his daughter is the one who's laying in a coma at the beginning of the book. Like he's, there is no love lost between... Um, Paris and John Proctor. And so John Proctor doesn't go to church every Sunday. And so that of course is used as evidence yep. that, that he is under the influence of the devil and of course you know, he is. et cetera, et cetera. Of course like he it is. does not, does not take an ironclad accusation to, uh, to get you arrested here. <laughs> um, so Danforth comes in in act three. Yeah. And he's, um, you know, he he becomes kind of the driving force behind everything. Like Hale, who who initiates things by the end of Act Three. Okay, let me go back to the beginning of Act Three. Act Three is John Proctor in the courthouse, trying to say, you know, Elizabeth is not a witch. Abigail accused her of being a witch because she wants to get with me. And this is like, this is him kind of. In the in the public eye, lowering his or ruining his quote unquote good name by telling everybody about the affair. Is this where he says that he has known her in the barn where his beasts are bedded? Yep, that's my that's favorite line. line in this play. That's, that's a good line, <laughs> and, and he says it's like the proper place. Yeah, I've known her he, in the proper place. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good one. But so he um, he tells Danforth, you know. Abigail worked for us. I had an affair with her. And then she, you know, we got rid of her. And so she's she's accusing Elizabeth out of jealousy. And so Danforth has Elizabeth brought up. And he wants to see if the story checks out. And so he, you know, makes Abigail and, and uh, Proctor, like, avert their eyes and not look at her or talk to her. And tries to see if their stories match up. And Elizabeth, in an attempt to protect John. Oh, no says, you know, I suspected there being an affair, so I let her go, but I don't think anything actually happened. And Danforth is like, well, your stories don't match, so no. you must be a witch. No. And at that at that point, Hale, who who um who got this whole ball rolling, is like, 
you know, I believe Proctor. He's a, it's something something struck me right about him. I think is the the exact. So is Hale starting to feel remorse? Yes. Oh. Like, he says from the from the beginning this man has struck me true and he says pointing at Abigail this girl has always struck me false which Ooh. I highlighted those both because um both because I think they're they're like good to talk about from a plot synopsis standpoint but I think they also point to like how flimsy your evidence can be mm-hmm. to accuse anybody of a witch like you're going you're literally going off of like hunches and the like how you feel what your gut reaction is to people who you've only just barely met well and it's kind of like it's kind of like it's the whole super pack modern political discourse thing too where it's like you can say something it's it's much worse to to say something and then even if it's wrong it's still been said you can't ring that bell even if you immediately try to like put the lie back in its bottle, like it's just out there. Yeah. And even if you like officially disavow whatever it was that's said, like people are still gonna run with it and like bring it up. Uh huh. So um, it's so really yeah, dangerous. Yeah. 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 It's, I know there. Are, I know it's not quite germane, but I know like the UK has really strict libel laws mm-hmm. that get you know that get. Uh, used in you know journalism and and stuff like that that people are a lot more careful about what they say about public figures in the UK than they are here in America because that's mm-hmm. much more of a severe suit it seems it's interesting right anyway um, so act 4 uh and then act 4 um John Proctor has has been like you know clapped in chains and there um i think 10 or 12 people have been executed oh man um, over a hundred people have just, you know, admitted that they were under the influence of the devil because the, the alternative is to be hanged. <laughs> so act four, we're past the courthouse. The courthouse is gone. Um, yeah, people have pretty much been, I mean, the courthouse is still there. Like Danforth is still there. Like the, the I, I believe the trials are still ongoing, but you're much further on. I think you're three months. Oh, wow. Okay. Past, um, act three at this point. But uh, so there are a handful of people left who won't who won't say, you know, I I am in league with the devil. Like they 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 proclaim their innocence and it's it's, it's a lie and they aren't going to say anything. Mm-hmm. So they are sentenced to be hanged the next morning. And um, John Proctor is among those people. OK. Um, and Elizabeth is, too. So they they have a discussion where she convinces him to like give up his pride and that she forgives him but he has to forgive himself for like the affair and for what happened and so yeah is he, there the sense that he is he thinks he's kind of repenting in a way for the affair by going feels, through this he feels pretty bad about it <laughs> <laughs> um but it's it's more about like you know, I, I, he will own up to what he has done wrong, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. he won't, he doesn't want to lie about this, this wrongdoing that he didn't actually do. Yeah. Like yeah. He, yeah. And so he confesses and it comes to the, like Elizabeth convinces him that, you know, he should, he should, you know, stay alive for her and for their three sons. And she's pregnant at the time. So they've got somebody else, you know, on the way. 
and he confesses and gets to the point where they're demanding that he sign it so they can like put it on the door of the church. And mm-hmm. he's saying, you know, I've confessed to, to God. Why do I need to confess publicly? Like is a, is a public repentance, like the only kind that matters. And, um, and he ends up tearing, you know, tearing the confession in half and, and getting hanged. And that's, that's the end of the great of the play. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a really, I'm like, I'm not doing it justice, but it's one of those, like, this is what I like about Arthur Miller is when he gets into these, you know, the monologues are always really great. Like when you get into somebody talking for multiple paragraphs, like it's really, it's powerful. Yeah. He does a good job. Well, that's, but before we go into theme, I'll I'll ask you this question. It is set in the 17th century, but Mm -hmm. do you feel like the dialogue is still kind of snappy? Does it feel dusty? It feels snappy. They do they do say things that I don't, you know, this is written in 52, 56. Yeah, yeah. Uh 53. Okay. You know, pretty close. Yeah, you you were in the <laughs> ballpark. Somewhere. You were in the neighborhood. Um they they do have phrases in there like like uh 3 month. They say like, you know, I've been doing something for this 3 month. And just like kind of weird that mean? archaic. Like they've been doing something for 3 months. What? just kind of weird little archaic constructions like that okay Um, so i think the language is kind of intentionally uh like some of the words and constructions they use are are intentionally kind of old feeling but i mean it's still very it's still very snappy also hard to separate from the fact that the play itself is 60 years old yeah right all right just checking because that's that's kind of what i liked about deadwood also being a work of historical fiction is that it kind of the all the cursing and stuff aside it did a real good job of maintaining a somewhat historical syntax yeah without yeah. being and, hard to listen to and that's what this does too it's, it's they're not like it's not like trying to listen to shakespeare where you have no idea what anybody's saying half the time unless you've got footnotes to lean on but <laughs> yeah but yeah i think it um it does it does a good job of making the dialogue feel like to the to the layperson, like I'm sure linguists would read this and be like, "What are you What are you doing, Arthur Miller?" But um, <laughs> well, you, know, you to, mean to historical like, linguists who like are nerds about how yeah. people talked when, yeah. But to someone like me who like doesn't you know doesn't have an intimate knowledge of what people talked like you know back in the 1600s, I, this the, it rings pretty true, but it's not like hard to read or understand. Well, and at the end of the day, he's writing about. Contemporary issues contemporary to a 1950s audience. So, if he puts too much distance between the audience and the language, then they're not going to get that message. Yeah, and th- and that's part of the part of the point of the play, I guess. Moving on to thematic yeah. stuff is, you know, while this was happening, you had the Red Scare going on, and um, Joe McCarthy, I think, mm-hmm. that's the name, right? Was um, Accusing like celebrities and and um, politicians and all kinds of people of being communists, and what you basically had to do was like if you came in and confessed to being a communist and said you would stop it, then you were allowed to go, you know, go on your merry way. But if you professed your innocence, then it was just assumed that you were hiding something, mm-hmm. and then you got like blacklisted, and you know you couldn't work anymore, and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't you couldn't do anything. So. The House of Un-American Activities. Yes. Yeah. The House Committee so the, of Un-American Activities. 
Right. So the the play is very much a commentary on that sort of thing. Well, and, and Arthur Miller himself was blacklisted for not naming names. Was he really? Yeah. So there you go. He's John Proctor. Have fun <laughs> with that, Arthur Miller. Author insertion. Oh, yeah. Because um, I think that's where that kind of burning, the burning anger at the at the heart of this play comes yeah. from. Yeah, because I think there is a lot of anger and a lot of resentment about now, do you think, um, you know, this comes from Jillian, who asked this question on Facebook. Um, she's asking how significant this perceived metaphor for the McCarthy trials is. Um, does it factor into the play while you're reading it? Like, is it a thing you're aware of? Does it shine through in the text? Or is it something that you can either kind of consider before or after reading it? It comes through as being just about the witch hunts in the text okay. itself. I mean, and then and then you go and you see, oh, this was authored in 1953, so like it's pretty obvious that that's what was going on. Like, I think I think it would have been really obvious to a contemporary audience. Okay, fair enough. And um, you know, it's it's an obvious enough connection to make if you know what year the play was written and what else was going on, mm-hmm. you know, during that time period. But um. There aren't any, like, there are no, and I think I actually saw a play that you put up a while back that was written in, I want to say, like, the 70s or something, but, like, people who put the play up often kind of change things about it oh, and yeah. add things to yeah. it to comment on contemporary things. Yeah, Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Yep. Yeah, and it wasn't like that. Okay. It was very, like, in the body of the text itself, it's very much about the, the witch trials, but... um. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't have any kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, dialogue. Not that I picked up. Like it's possible that to a contemporary audience who is more familiar with the Red Scare stuff, that it that it had more of that. But it doesn't. It didn't come through to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But what really struck me when you were talking about the relationship between Abigail and John Proctor earlier was that idea that like where this all becomes so troublesome is when people have other axes to grind right and then start wielding this witch hunt to those ends mm-hmm. and then, i mean i think that's that's still i don't think we have to go very far to find more modern examples of of stuff like this like when you look at politics like i think the the worst one of the most damaging and like one of the most damaging things you can kind of call somebody is like un-American. Like yeah. nobody wants to be thought of as being un-American. Nobody wants to walk around without the little flag lapel pin. Like there's just, there's certain criteria that you have to meet. And if you don't meet them, then it's like, Oh, why do you, why do you hate America? What do you, why are you embarrassed about this country? Like it's stuff that you're not allowed to, to be. And people don't need much evidence to accuse you of being that way. Yeah. American exceptionalism being a thing. <laughs> That our yeah, country right. was kind of founded on. Um, yeah, the idea that you do one thing and then get labeled that, and then it kind of colors how everybody views your actions regardless. You know, and that's and I th- no, go ahead. that's human interaction in a microcosm, in, yeah. in a way. But when it becomes loaded with people's belief systems, that's a whole other issue. And it, it's even worse now than I think it, it was. Like, it was... Um, the Salem witch trials there, there were, there were some 
I think in the play they mention another kind of nearby town where something similar is going on. Mm-hmm, the people mm-hmm. people have basically rebelled against the insanity of it. Oh, okay. Um, where was I going with? This? I don't know. <laughs> oh, um, the the spread is limited, but okay. today, like you know, given Twitter and social media and the internet and everything, like it's so so easy for stuff to spread so quickly. Like you only need one prominent person to hint at something and then people just start spreading it and you know games of telephone starts happening and just just and, and even if you like like we said earlier even if you come out and try and retract it later once that information is out there it's it's hard to really erase it well and you know we didn't really talk about it on the podcast cuz i don't think it ever seemed appropriate but uh in the wake of the tragedy in boston you could see that online with all the like vigilante police work being done by internet communities where it was like, here's this guy. He looks shifty. His backpack looks heavy. He's definitely a terrorist. And then those, those were not the dudes. Thanks internet. Cause it can, it can start almost innocently just because people want to help. Yep. People want to help. People want there to be reasons for things. People, people want to have, I mean, in the case of the Boston thing, I think people instantly want somebody to turn around and blame because yes, because once they once you know who did it or who you think did it, like you can start to ascribe motive to it, and it makes it not less horrible, but it makes it a little easier to um, to digest and process. Yeah, um, with the with the play, this is a question. Other than the whole dancing in the woods thing. Like, is the witchcraft being ascribed to some kind of greater ill in the community other than just, like, I couldn't do my prayers? And, you know, is it people's specific issues or is there, like, something larger that the witchcraft seems to be an answer for, if that makes sense? There are just, there are some very, and, and Abigail is usually the ringleader for this kind of stuff, but there are some scenes in the book where, like, she and a group of girls will all be chanting something at the same time, or like somebody will get chills and people will start accusing them of being a witch or of seeing spirits or something like people are, people are just scared of the devil being around. I think is the the main thrust of it. Um, But but they'll, they'll take like, they're not like something plaguing their village. That they are no, then... not not in particular. Like individuals have stuff like the oh my oh you know this midwife killed all my babies or like I can't say my prayers or like ever since I bought a pig from you like I can't keep any alive for more than a month or something yeah, like yeah. that. Like just every little misfortune once once the idea of witchcraft gets floated is you know people start to make connections however tenuous they may be just in an effort to explain what's going on. Yeah. When you when that scene where the girls cuz I was surprised you didn't mention it the first go through when those girls are chanting and and being all bewitched. Right, right. Do you get the sense and I don't remember from reading it if it's indicated or not. Do you get the sense that Abigail kind of starts that knowingly and then a bunch of girls get caught up in it? Like how does that scene play out? Cuz I think that's a decent look at how these things go. I mean, I, I I think that she is calculating 
and she is instigating this mm. this stuff. I mean, there's a there's a um, I guess you'd call it a deleted scene by today's standards. Like there is a second scene in Act Two. Okay. That um, Miller wrote and was in like the original version of the play, but it's not usually performed anymore. And it was in this the book that I read as an appendix. But um, it's basically a scene between Proctor and Abigail where Proctor says, you know, I'm going to go in tomorrow and tell everybody about us to exonerate Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And um, so you don't really get a full sense of what's going on, like between scenes. Like it's entirely possible that that Abigail like went around to all these girls and kind of planned this stuff to happen because yeah, especially yeah. in, in act one, you get the sense that she's really the ringleader for a lot of this stuff. And, um, yeah. So does that answer? Yeah, I guess so. Cause I think again, it goes back to that idea that one or two people can have a very personal ax to grind or a personal beef with someone else. And then they can mm-hmm. kind of tap into that mob mentality that's the dangerous part of this that I think that Miller seems to be talking about. Yeah. It's just like mob mentality and, um, you know, a guilty until proven innocent or like having to lie to save yourself, whether it's true or not. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah, like there's, there's like, there's no way to be proven innocent. You are either guilty and spared or, you know, you don't know, and then you're left to hang or whatever. Yeah, or you're presumed guilty and are killed for not admitting it. Yeah, there's there's actually a really kind of poignant sequence where um, one of the one of the townspeople he does he does not want to say that he's guilty of like you know working with the devil because he's not, mm-hmm. but he also doesn't want to. Um, be accused, like be be hanged because like they'll seize his property and his family won't oh, be able to yeah. get it. And so while they're torturing him to try to get him to confess, he just like lets them torture him until he dies. Is that the guy that they crush with stones? Yes. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And so instead of confessing, the only wo- the only words he says are more weight until. They oh God, that's him. right. More weight. Yeah, oh that's God. Really. Ugh. Really. There's some really powerful scenes in here, and that's that's what I liked about Death of a Salesman. And after reading this, I'm going to have to read some more Arthur Miller just because obviously his stuff resonates with me. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, um, you were saying earlier that Jimmy Stewart was in the movie in your mind, <laughs> but do you know who played him in the movie? No. Was it Jimmy Stewart? No, it was Daniel Day-Lewis oh, okay. in the 1998 that, that, movie. That would... That, that works yeah. too. Yeah, he's he's pretty good. He's pretty good <laughs> in that movie. I'll have to watch it. Yeah. Uh, but, um, if you don't have any other questions, I just have one because this is something that you said you wanted to bring back when you saw when you read like a particular line or passage that just struck you funny. Oh yeah, so yeah, yeah. I do have, I do have one. Is that what we're calling so, the segment? Uh, struck me funny. It struck me funny. This struck me so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this is in Act Two. Um, Proctor is talking to Mary Warren, who is his housekeeper since Abigail left. Okay. Um, he told her not to go to Salem because of the you know the trouble of Bruin, mm-hmm. and uh, so he's he's arguing with her about that. So Mary Warren says, "I only come to see the great doings in the world," 
And Proctor says, I'll show you a great doing on your arse one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going to spank her. He's going to yes. hit her. That is the, that is the intimation. I'll show yeah. you a great doing on your arse. <laughs> that's pretty good. I liked it. Um, so that's that's our show. Um, I'm Andrew and he's Craig and we talk about books. And if you want to talk to us about how we talk about books, you can visit our Twitter page at twitter.com slash overdue pod or our Facebook page at um, the same URL except with facebook.com instead mm-hmm. of twitter.com. Mm-hmm. That's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you can also email us at overduepod at gmail.com. And we do like when we get questions that we can answer on the show, whether about books that we've read previously or about the book that we, we plan to read. We do try to keep both the Facebook feed and our website at overduepodcast.com um, updated with the books that we have read as well as the books that we plan to read over the next two weeks. So if you want to follow along, um, those are the places to look. And if you uh, head on over to that website that Aaron just told you about, uh, you can find all the back episodes of the show. You can find the RSS feed if you want to plug that into your Android phone or you want to plug that into your feed reader or you just want to keep the browser open and listen to it in the browser at work. That That's just fine. That works for me. <laughs> we don't care how you we listen. We don't care how you listen. better be listening. better just... listen to this show. Uh, and if you do <laughs> listen to it and you like it, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you went on iTunes there's a link from the web from the website, and you can leave us a review. You can recommend us to your friends. Uh, I think that's everything. Oh, you can also pick up a copy of any of the books that we've read through the Amazon links on our show. That keeps the website ad free while also uh, supporting the show financially for hosting and all sorts of other good stuff. Yeah. So that's it. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we will see you next week. Later. Bye.